Welcome to Care Talk, America's home for incisive debate about healthcare business and policy. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of CareCentrics. David, who do we have today as a guest? Well, John, we have an illustrious guest today, Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, Vice Provost and Professor of Medical Ethics and Health Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. He has a long list of, of honors. Uh, toward the top of the list, John, is that he's a former Care Talk guest. You know, we don't always invite people back, but that's uh, that's one of the that's one of the top things. I, Although I, I, th- he's kind of achieved a bunch of other things that I think sit a little bit out of that. But that's just my that's just your opinion, Zeke, John. Zeke, Zeke, welcome back. And uh, the topic today: people versus COVID. Who's winning? Well, it's definitely uh, COVID has the uh, upper hand at the moment. We're in the BA5 surge, and I think that's going up. We're now past 40,000 uh, hospitalizations, which is probably our best marker of how severe it's going on. People who get COVID are uh, experiencing sort of a prolonged uh, flu-like symptoms, which are the worst flu they've ever had, at least by anecdotal report to me. And uh, we're you know, uh, everyone's expecting to get it. So it's also a, a real problem. On the other hand, the public health community is like, uh, this is a serious problem. And, uh, you know, we've really got to take serious precautions, but no one's listening to that as far as I can tell. So, um, so not see, the public have... and not the politicians. So Zika, I have like a riddle for you, which is, you know, why, why isn't the public involved in public health? <laughs> well, the public has to respond. I mean, we, you know, public health people make recommendations, whether it's wearing masks or avoiding crowds or whatever. And if the public doesn't respond, uh, you're not going to promote the public health. And well, so I think that see, turns out to be a huge, huge problem. But see, my, I talked to my 88 year old mother. She's look, I, I'm vaccinated. I'm boosted. Um, yeah, I'm a cancer survivor, but my friends aren't getting aren't, aren't getting sick. Where I want to live my life, I I'm 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 a nurse, so I, I get the fact that I should be scared, but I'm not. I wanna I want to go out and experience my life. I was depressed. I'm just pl- playing that out. You know, someone who's who's a, who'd be a prime target for a, a dangerous case of COVID, and it's a, it is definitely a negotiation as to yeah. how much she's going to adjust her life. And I think she's right there with most Americans is we've done this for two and a half years, 30 months. That's it. Mass. I'm, I'm done. Um, and so we want th- those social activities part of life back. We want uh, to be able to uh, go to indoor dining, social events, not have to wear masks, travel. Uh, not unreasonable. So I, I think that's where we're at. And well, I you're the that's... public health expert. You should be the national COVID expert. So, what should what what can we do given that that weird imbalance between what the you know Eric Topols and and Bob Walkers, the doctors who are who are sort of ringing the alarm around some of this, and and uh, and and the rest of us? What how do we bridge that? I think it goes back to what David said, which is. The word public is in public health. And unless you carry along the public, you are not going to have any response to public health. Um, and we can't, you know, it's like politicians know you can only go ahead of the public so far. If you lose the public, uh, you're not going to be a politician for very long. And similarly for public health 
uh, people. What does that mean? Okay, it means, number one, accepting that COVID is endemic. And as the public has pointed out, we're living with it. We're not going to conquer it. We're not going to see it in the rearview mirror, as it were. We're going to have to live with it. Second, that also means, I think, very interestingly, uh, we are going to live with increased risk, increased risk of getting a serious infection, increased risk of hospitalization, increased risk of death, but also importantly, increased risk of, uh, I think, something I certainly fear, I think the public fears um, probably a little less, is long COVID and disability. Um, But the public's willing to accept that for the other things, the social life, school being normal, uh, uh, indoor dining, and, and all of those things that go along with, you know, a full life. Um, I'd say that the other thing is, you know, it should make us think about what we as a society can do that don't, doesn't require every individual to adhere to it. And, and one of the things that has been supremely frustrating to me has been the fact that we can improve indoor air quality. Uh, that'll make a big difference in reducing the risk of COVID transmission. We can do it through improving HVAC systems, uh, adding HEPA filters when you can't improve the HVAC system, uh, having germicidal lights, uh, uh, UV lights. Um, there doesn't seem to be any big drive to doing that. And I think that's a huge mistake. Not only is that anti-COVID, it's anti-flu. It also can help us in lots of other respiratory illnesses by improving the indoor air quality we it's, don't see it so that that would it. be that would actually make a dent in in flu because flu still kills tens of thousands of people yeah. a year. 25 to sixty thousand a year depending on how bad the strain is absolutely um it'll make a difference there um so i think i think that's a kind of thing. We also need to change our recommendations on vaccination and, and how we are approaching that. No one is getting a shot every two, three, four months. No one. You know, you can just see the huge drop off uh, of getting booster three and then booster four. It, you know, not going to happen. And so I think we need to rethink the whole vaccination approach. You need annual vaccination. We need to assess those vaccines for all of them, including the new uh, Novavax vaccine for durability and really emphasize those that are durable and more broad-based. So, Zeke, I'm hearing a couple of of interesting things uh, within the discussion, a couple of things that are new to me. So one is to say, you know, you've got two, two and a half years. That seems to be how long you could get someone to change their behavior, individual behaviors. But there's things that can be done at a systemic level to make the environment safer that aren't being done either. And those relate to, for example, ventilation. And then there's maybe and maybe a new cause for action, a, a uh, you know, something people don't see so much. Maybe the long COVID might be a reason to say, hey, even if you're accepting your day to day risks, there's this broader risk out there. Maybe if you put two and two together and you say, look, there's these broader things that can affect might affect me that I really don't want. Maybe I don't change my individual behavior, but I sure want the school to be well ventilated and so on. Is there a, a glimmer of hope there? Uh, yeah, there is a glimmer of hope, but I think it, it means that the public health community needs to change, I think, change its approach. Um, and I do think uh, uh, the one place I'm, I'm most pessimistic about is, you know, if the public moves on and politicians aren't focused on it, we actually won't fund and prioritize the things we need to do, like improving indoor air quality, um, which is going to take some money. Um, we also need to develop, uh, I would say, different therapeutics. Now, 
let's just make but, uh, but you know, before, a before you go before you before oh. you go there i think you made a really interesting point i think you're suggesting that the shame and blame public health approach to telling people what to do the sense that they feel condescended to that got i think capitalized on by politicians who are fighting it um I, I i do think that 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 that's part of our challenge zeke and i i don't know do you have a different approach that you'd recommend because at this point i think people even in even whether it's a blue or a red state uh are tuning to are tuning out the public health authorities that they listened very carefully to two years ago what approach would you recommend there yeah i <laughs> I think as public health people talking to the public, we need to affirm uh, or recognize what the public is willing to tolerate and not try to impose things that they're not willing to, uh, they don't seem to be willing to accept. Um, you know, some people, I don't know how big a proportion of the population is, will continue to wear a mask. I'm one of them. Um, uh, some people, uh, will continue to not dine indoors, only dine outdoors uh, until there's a sort of systematic improvement of air quality. Um, but we need to recognize that's that's a minority. It's going to be a small minority. Um, and so I think we need to uh, uh, accept that most aren't going to do that and then ask the question, well, if most aren't going to do it, how do we change our language and what policies should we prioritize that accepts that fact. Um, and I do think, um, you know, public health officials need to learn from their uh, past experience and, and from our current experience. You look, I go to Washington. Um, I go to, you know, whatever, the grocery store, walk down the street, go to uh, markets. And, um, you know, no one's wearing a mask. I'm wearing a mask, but no one else is wearing a mask. You yeah, know, that's where the public is. Um, and you cannot, you know, as they used to say, you can't fight City Hall. If the public isn't going to listen to you, whatever you say is not going to get the response we need to uh, uh, address the current crisis. And so we need to get the public more on board. We need to uh, communicate. We understand uh, where they're coming from and what they're willing and not willing to do. Yeah, I, I do think that there is a fundamental communication breakdown around public health, probably in general in this country. But you look at where we have made major social movements pivot against typical behavior, whether it's uh, mothers against drunk driving or, you know, mom's demand for gun safety. You're starting you, you, it or the or the environmental movement, which found a way to engage people in the 60s and 70s that it seems yeah. to have failed now. There there is a there are examples where 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 through constituency groups and changing the terms of the conversation that you were one was able to engage the public and i i do think it feels like there's a little bit of a failure of imagination is is there a country or a political leader that you'd point to that's getting it right right now uh i'm not sure because <laughs> honestly the places that seem to have gotten it right like uh new zealand um and others uh you know, I don't know what the current moment is. I will tell you, I have done a little traveling, not a lot, a little traveling. I was in France this summer, Israel, uh, Jordan, and every place is in the same boat. I, and I think, you know, what that made me conclude is this sort of exhaustion after 30 months of, you know, 
trying to turn yourself into a pretzel to reduce your risk of COVID. That's the limit of human endurance, uh, by and large. And it's not, it's not like, you know, we're Americans and we're anti, uh, uh, public health more than anyone else. I think it says something about human nature. Um, so, so John, you know, I like where you're going in terms of like on the highway safety side. It wasn't just the kind of mothers against driving drunk, but it was also things that were happening actually with the government and then eventually even, you know, the manufacturers. So, you know, safety didn't used to sell and safety does sell now. And one of the reasons is you can go and see crash ratings. People actually care about safety when they buy a car, even a, you know, a fast and luxurious car where that's not the only thing they're looking at. And I wonder, well, David, but David, I, I think that, yeah. so it, okay. no, it's a great analogy and it actually has a useful point, which is how did we get car safety so good, right? Once we got everyone to do seatbelts, but a lot of the other stuff, airbags, I don't install the airbag. I don't even, it's not even an option. It's mandated. It's just there. I'm passive and it helps. Better crash resist or front end crash resistance and stuff. I didn't do that. You know, it got built in, Um, you know, better highway guards, all of the stuff that got built in. So I didn't have to take an affirmative action. Really, really important. And now no one actually, the, the great thing is we got seatbelts to be habitual by the buzzing and all of that. No one even thinks twice about it, right? You, it, it's just like a habit, a habit. And that's really important. And we need to think through in the COVID case. I think you guys are onto it. We need to think through in the COVID case, what do we put in place like indoor air quality that no one has to do or that becomes a habit. And I'll give you one of my favorites is we need to develop a therapeutic where I spray it in my nose or mouth or whatever, and it protects me from COVID, not for, you know, a long time, but for For the the dinner, for the dinner party, for the, for, yeah, for your, for your, for your dance party. Exactly. Exactly. For the wedding. Right. And, you know, it would become a habit. I'm going out socializing schmutz. You know, I just spray it in my nose and, and, and mouth. And I think that's the kind of thing we need. So if you show up at a restaurant, you know, you just you show the maitre d', you, you sprayed it in your nose, and everyone's feeling uh, it, it's easy for people to do. The other stuff is done in the background, uh, so we don't have to take positive action. I'll tell you another thing, uh, John and David, that would help um, the public with uh, if public health officials did that would convince them they understand. Forswear closures of schools, um, uh, sporting events and other things for COVID, um, you know, unless there's some really deadly strain. Uh, Because I think, you know, that would affirm, we hear you, it's endemic, we're gonna live with it. We're not going to uh, uh, turn you know, society upside down because another strain has arrived. So, 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 seek talk a little bit about the 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 risks of long COVID and what we should be doing. I think you and I violently agree that we should be investing a lot more money in understanding it first, um, and then and then and then whether you see anything, any hope. Maybe define it and then talk about how we're investing it and then how we're going to solve it because we're actually John, really pretty the, good at solving big healthcare problems in America as long as we acknowledge what they are. 
John, you're forgetting. Who's the professor here? What are you telling us? This is a three-part <laughs> question. What's the story? <laughs> um, yeah, long COVID, I think, is this sleeper issue. You know, again, human nature is such that we deal with the immediate rather than the uh, long-term important um, because we discount the future. But long COVID is, I think, one of the more scary things uh, because the people I know who develop long COVID are really incapacitated by it. They lack the energy. They can't do the focus. Um, they really feel uh, constrained. Their life has just collapsed uh, on them, and the things that they used to do, just they cannot do, and they're pretty desperate. Um, you know, our problem at the moment is, uh, first, uh, we just haven't, collected the data. It's been almost exactly two years. May 2020 is when we really began to identify long COVID. And uh, the the slovenly pace at which we've taken it seriously has really annoyed me. Um, next month, early next month, we're supposed to get a official report from HHS on the game plan. Um, it's a little late. Uh, uh, but, you know, I can't tell you how serious the risk is. Why can't I tell you? We don't have the data. Why don't we have the data? Because we didn't study it out of the box the way we should have. Um, I can't tell you. We know that. We know that. We know vaccines uh, reduce the risk of long COVID. How much is debated? Different studies come out with different things and numbers. It appears, and this may or may not be true, that um, the Omicron variant uh, has fewer uh, cases of long COVID, but it's hard to really know whether that's true or sampling error. And my most, the most frustrating thing, in my opinion, is you've got, it's clearly millions of people who are suffering for that. How many millions is a little hard to tell, but millions of people. And when you talk to them, they are really desperate to do almost anything they can. Um, and we're not doing any therapy interventions yet. And indeed, the NIH's study, as we sit here and talk, has enrolled less than 20% and maybe even less than 15% of the number of people it's supposed to enroll. And it's been, you know, we've allocated the money for how, a year. How, how can that be? How can that be true, given the number of people who've had COVID and now long COVID? Uh, that's insane. <laughs> I keep pounding away at well, that. Well, John, first what of all, what are they you, doing there? Yeah. I mean, you know, they yeah. have they have not approached this with the urgency it needs, and I think they've approached it in the usual. You know, um, I'm an I'm the academic here, so I can say this in the usual academic way. They have not approached this as if this is an urgent national problem. For me, this is the urgent national problem on COVID because. If you remove long COVID, if we could say, you know, the chance is one in a thousand. And by the way, here's a treatment that ameliorates it. Okay. You know, it's like, okay, I get COVID. I'm going to be laid up for two weeks. But it's not uh, the devastating. Crippling. It, it's not a long-term permanent uh, uh, compromise of my life. On the other hand, long COVID is a long-term permanent compromise on my life. And I'm very fearful of that especially given the rates that some people are talking about, 5%, 10%, um, you know, that's a lot of people. So I think we need to turbocharge us. I've been saying this now for months and months and months. I've been screaming it at HHS for uh, at least since January. 
um, it's it's kind of disappointing um, uh, that we have not uh, done a much better job. They claim they will enroll the full study by the end of the year. You know, guys, that's another six months. When are you going to have the first people on therapies? That should be, as your question, John, suggests, you know, we should be able to try a different therapy every week in a randomized fashion because there are so many people who are so desperate to try anything. But we are, we are, you know, we are not moving at warp speed, as it were. Uh, maybe I'm not even sure is, we're moving is, is, at uh, hair speed. It's more like tortoise speed, and that's a real frustration. So, Zeke, you you asked and answered some of the questions, and or at least put them out there. You know, how many people get it? Is it more from you know? How does this vaccine have an impact? Is one variant different from another? And you sort of answered another question, which I have, which is how long is it? You know, I heard long COVID, longer. Is this forever, permanent? Do we know that? And how, you know, <laughs> that seems to me, that's a yeah, question I we have. We don't know that for sure, okay? Is it, per- are some people permanently incapacitated the way it appears people of other vice- post-viral syndromes are incapacitated? Um, uh, so I think that is something we're going to have to find out. Some people clearly recover. It's prolonged for weeks and a few months, but then they uh, get back to normal. Uh, Other people, it's clear that it's lasted years um, and uh, they are really, really uh, uh, devastated. So, John, what are you going to do about it? Well, I, I, I think that uh, sadly, the, the, the way we get attention on things in healthcare is either through a radically aggressive constituency group you know, act up, or in my case of my family, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, because my sister died of cystic fibrosis, or you, or it costs a lot of money, or there's a particular medical specialty that's politically wired. I mean, it's, this goes down to almost power politics. It's either, it's either aggressive constituent advocacy because we were late and then very successful in AIDS. In, but, but again, and it, and I, well, and you see it in some, in some groups that are, they're spring cancer. Or you have to have something that costs too much money to be ignored. Well, well, I'm and, I, a and I think, unfortunately, about, the slow burn here. I'm a little worried about the latter, John, because um, if we do have millions of people who have prolonged disabilities, we will realize it costs too much, sort of too late to actually take it sufficiently seriously and we'll be ca- playing usual catch up. I do think um, uh, this is something where. Uh, you know, it's really the research community. At the moment, this is a research problem because we don't have uh, an intervention that we know about. And we really need a warp speed on this issue. Um, I will be very curious uh, to hear what the game plan is going forward. Um, but I'm, I'm, I guess I'm not optimistic given the most recent announcement that we don't even have 5,000 people enrolled or 6,000 people enrolled in the, in the NIH trial, which is already a small trial. It's 40,000 people as opposed to. So the, should we give up on the U.S. and focus on like the NHS or the Israeli um, health system, actually, or the German health system seen, where you could. You know, uh, I haven't seen the Israeli health system be great on, on long COVID either. Um, and I'm not 100 percent sure why. Um this does seem to be one of those things, which is a worldwide failure. Um, so, 
I mean, I think it has something to do with the nature of the illness, right? If you talk about somebody that just has no energy, you know, they're not, they don't have energy to organize and to go out and march on the streets and it's affecting adults, mostly not kids. And so you don't have just this kind of groundswell of people that the caregivers are already, if like it's somebody's spouse, you know, they don't have extra time to go out there. So I think it's also an organizing phenomenon and there has to be political motive or profit motive or alliance with some other groups, you know, in order to make something uh, happen. Because we can see the public health folks are not able to rise to the occasion to uh, get everybody going. Well, I, th- I mean, I will tell you one, one thing that gave me a glimmer of hope, but I don't know that it's, uh, it's uh, panned out this way, um, is, uh, you know, Tom Kane, senator from Virginia, has long COVID, experiencing long COVID. And usually when that happens, such a prominent, you know, former vice presidential candidate, such a prominent person, that usually galvanizes the uh, uh, bureaucracy to really do something. Um, And I do think uh, one of the worries I have is that um, we've, you know, the public's moved beyond and including long COVID. Therefore, the politicians are moving beyond COVID and losing sight of what's really urgent. Um, and this, I mean, not in urgent, really important. And this is, this is one of those really important things. Um, it is going to give us tremendous insight when we unravel this into uh, the immunological system, how it goes off kilter and things like that. Um, and, and, you know, I, I don't think it's, it's, uh, it, it's going to be a, it's going to be a gold mine in terms of ha- helping us understand autoimmune diseases and other things. We just got to uh, get the well, NIH a, more. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps on that, on that happy ish, dark view, David, we should wrap this. I'll just, I'll just, I, for the first time in my life, I, I will be able to, 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 uh, uh, to correct my esteemed friend Zeke that it's Tim Kane, not Tom, Tom Kane. Tom Kane was the former governor uh, of of New Jersey and Tim Kaine, I believe, is the one who's suffering from yes, long yes, COVID. Right. We're, I'm, I, but on but on that uh, on that uh, hope, hopeful on the dark anecdote, David, I think we better actually wrap. That sounds good. Before you start talking about Herman Kane <laughs> next, in any case, that's it. That's it for yet another edition of Care Talk. We've been today with our esteemed guest, Professor Ezekiel Emanuel. And I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of Care Sandrix. If you like what you heard and you didn't, please subscribe on your favorite service. Thank you, Zeke.